John 19 and 20. I will remind that we're going to go through these two chapters, as is our usual pace, two chapters a week, pretty fast. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll read through them, comment on some places, and then we're going to go to a worship song. And then I'll come back and maybe 10, 12 minutes give us some encouragement out of this passage that I think maybe the Lord would want us to hear tonight. So there'll be two parts. Understood? So don't think, oh, yay, he's done, and I'm not. <laughs> right. And then also, just so you know, those of you who have been going through the Bible for years, uh, we're going to be done at the end of this year. That's incredibly exciting for us who have been teaching the Bible. It's just, it's incredible. Uh, we're going to, we're going to end John next week. Pastor Mike's going to take us to the epistles of John and then we're going to do revelation and it's it. That's the end. So yes, we're coming to it. All right. Well, let us go to, uh, I'm going to read our intro from the bulletin, just keeping afresh in our minds why live eternally is in my view, the theme at least that we're trying to bring out from John as we go through it. So the bulletin has all the deets right there. It says, John writes his gospel, quote, So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This life is zoe in Greek. It differs from bios or biological life. Zoe is God's life. It's the kind of life that lives forever. It never decays. Though originally assumed to be something limited to heaven, John dares us to find Zoe in Jesus today. This is the life God wants us to live right now. A piece of himself within us. A bit of heaven on earth before Jesus returns to the earth. Eternal life is not merely life after death, but also life before death. And so, Father, as we come to your word tonight, I pray that your spirit would give life to us through the word that is contained in the scriptures. So, Lord, open our eyes, give us eyes to see your life and your light, and guide us as we go through these very important chapters in this gospel. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so in the words of my daughter, who likes, she learned the word big, and she says it big. She goes, big, every time she says big. So these chapters are big. <laughs> the crucifixion and resurrection right here. And John does it so, so powerfully. So the big idea that I see as we're coming to this is we're asking, as we come to these chapters, is the Zoe life with Jesus has offered us throughout the gospel, this long lasting, deep quality form of life that we can get in Jesus right now. And it's so deep and lasting that it extends beyond this life into the next. Is that life that Jesus has been offering really everything that he's claimed it is? That's the question that's asked as we come to this. In chapter 19, the answer appears to be no. Jesus was a phony. He claimed he had this life and he died. But then we come to chapter 20. I'm back. And then we say, whoa, this kind of life doesn't just keep going. But even when it apparently succumbs to death, it overcomes the death and keeps going. 
So this life is actually sneakily much stronger, deeper, and more lasting than we could even imagine it was. So that's what we see in these two chapters. So in chapter 19, the crucifixion, and in chapter 20, the resurrection. Now let me remind you that John is writing to tell us that this old creation is rotting, and the new creation that God has always planned and promised, the new heavens and new earth, are becoming a reality in the person of Jesus. And so he starts the gospel off like it's the book of Genesis with the words, in the beginning. And then he says, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so forth down to the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that in Jesus, we have the new beginning of the new creation. It's a brand new Genesis. And so Jesus comes and John specifically says, I'm recording these signs only. These are miracles. He chooses seven miracles to record of all the ones Jesus did, seven of them. He limits it to that number to mirror the stages of creation, the seven creation days. And so Jesus is on earth and he's doing these creative acts and he's showing us through these miracles. There's signs pointing to the new creation and he's showing us what to anticipate or what it looks like as he's doing these miracles. And then to put the cherry on top, the seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, truth, life. I am the shepherd. I am the door. I am the true vine. Those are just the cherry on top, seven more things. So we see that throughout, John has been showing Jesus is the creator of the new creation. And the new creation is filled not with this biological life that decays and deteriorates, but it's filled with the Zoe life. And that's what we see Jesus demonstrating. So we come now to the very, getting to the very end of the gospel. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. You might remember how we ended last week. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. They brought him before Pontius Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor of the area where Jerusalem is. So Pilate is there as a representative of Caesar, the king of the world. And he comes face to face with God's son, Jesus, the true king of the world. And they have this little duel about whose kingdom is better, in a sense. And Jesus talks very strangely about his kingdom, and Pilate can't figure him out. And there are seven scenes in this trial. We're actually launching tonight in the middle of this trial, but there's seven scenes, and they all alternate from outside, inside, outside, inside. All right? So beginning as it was in 1828, it says that they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, that's the high priest, to the governor's headquarters, Pilate. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Pontius Pilate is a Gentile. The Jews didn't want to get themselves dirty. They wanted to eat the Passover, right? It's really ironic that they care so much about not defiling themselves with a Gentile's house, but they're willing to murder Jesus and then eat the Passover the next. It's just ironic, isn't it? So they stay outside. And there's the first uh, discussion with Pilate. Outside, they say, hey, this man is to be put in trouble. Then Pilate takes Jesus inside, and they have this discussion about kingdoms. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Pilate uses the uh, 
Pilate representing Caesar uses the sword. He uses crucifixion to get his way. Jesus is using truth. Then third, they go back outside and Pilate says, okay, do you want Jesus or Barabbas? And they choose to release Barabbas and they want to crucify Jesus. Then he goes back inside Part four, he goes back inside and he talks to Jesus. And that's where we are now. So I'm going to continue reading for us in John 19. So Pilate took Jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in purple robe. They came up to him saying, hail king of the Jews and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them. So inside phase four, the, the soldiers are mocking Jesus, right? Striking him. They put the crown of thorns on his head. Very fitting. If Jesus is bringing the new creation to this world, he, before he becomes the king of the new creation, he puts on the crown of the old creation. Thorns was a byproduct of this old creation's fall. When Adam and Eve fell, God said, thorns and thistles will now come out of the ground. And rather appropriately to say, on the cross, I'm putting to death the old creation. He puts those thorns on as a crown and puts it to death, making a way for the new creation to come. So scene four, the soldiers mock Jesus. Scene five, Pilate comes back outside. So that's in verse four. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. I just flogged him. Maybe that will get him off the hook. See, I punished him. Let him go. I... So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and he's just been beat and spat upon and mocked. So he looks a little less human than he was before. And Pilate said to them, behold, the man. And when the chief priests and the officers, the religious leaders of the Jewish people, when they saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Sort of uh, some mocking here, because Pilate knows the Jews can't put Jesus to death. Rome took that right away from the Jews. They don't have the right of capital punishment. So that's why they're coming to Pilate in the first place. Hey, kill this guy, kill this guy. And then Pilate's just kind of like to show him this whole thing's ridiculous. You take him and kill him yourselves, knowing full well nothing can come out of that. But then they keep pressing him, right? And then they, they pull out this magic trump card. Well, actually, what is it? Ace is the best, right? Then king is the second best. Okay, so the ace is still up their sleeve. They pull out the king and they say... Hey, this man made himself the son of God. Now, we Christians, all Christianized and church, churchized, whatever. Uh, the word son of God, the phrase, it's just like, duh, Jesus is the son of God. It means he's divine. And it's such a common phrase for us. But in this time, it was very dangerous language to use the phrase son of God. Because Caesar gave that title to himself. It was Julius Caesar who took over the Roman Republic and made it an empire. And Julius Caesar died. And after he was assassinated, it was his cronies that started to say, we saw him ascend into heaven. He's therefore a god. So then when Octavian or Caesar Augustus took the throne after Caesar, guess what everybody said about him? He is the son of God. So 
it gave him legitimacy as being partially a deity, and it was a title that Caesar himself used. So when Jesus says, I'm the son of God, it sounds in the ears of Pilate that Jesus is directly defying the title that Caesar himself has. In other words, Pilate is hearing them say, this man Jesus thinks that he ought to be Caesar and not the emperor. Which is sedition, which is treachery, it's high treason, which is capital punishment in any kingdom. This gets Herod's interest. So, back inside, scene number six, verse eight. Back inside. He comes to Jesus. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him. You would have no authority over me at all unless it be given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out. So here's the seventh and final scene of the trial. He's back outside. The Jews cried out. And here is their ace card. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Jesus making himself son of God, a king. Pilate, if you let this man off the hook, you are basically telling Caesar that you don't think he should be king either. And you will lose your official status of friend of Caesar, which is a Roman title for basically saying you're in Caesar's in crowd. Big position. You don't want to lose that. And so Pilate now shudders. They're threatening his very political position, maybe even his head. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the stone pavement and in Aramaic or Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. That would be noon. And said, he said to the Jews, behold, your king. But they cried out. Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. Wow. So in this seventh and final scene of the trial, we have a climax. It's, it's brought to our attention by three locations. Notice in verse 13, it says the stone, uh, he went to the judgment seat, the place called the stone pavement, and it even gives us the Hebrew tongue, Gabbatha. So three names for this one place. The scene is set. This is a big place. This is the highest political position this side of the Roman Empire. In Jerusalem, this is Rome's seat of authority. Caesar comes to this throne and makes this declaration. Behold your king. And the time is significant because it tells us it was the preparation for the Passover and it was noon, which, by the way, happened to be the precise moment that over in the temple, just a little bit over, 
The priests were beginning to slaughter the lambs for the Passover meal. It started at noon and ended at about three. So right at this moment, this huge place, this huge moment, uh, Pilate, who represents the Roman Empire, the power of the world, points to Jesus and says, behold, your king. This is, in some respects, a coronation, although nobody knew the power of those words and how true they really were. And yet the Jews, like Adam and Eve in the garden, said, he's not our king. Like Moses and the Israelites, as they made the golden calf, he's not our king. And now the religious leaders looking at Jesus, he's not our king. Here we have the great collapse of politics and religion. Caesar, who ought to be upholding justice, gives in and lets them do what's unjust. The religious leaders who ought to be upholding the fact that Yahweh is their king, God, the one true God is the king of Israel, admit that even Caesar is their king. Both church and state, if you will, pardon the phrase, but, you know, uh, religion and politics collapse right here in the presence of Jesus. So they took Jesus in verse 17. He went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic or Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. By the way, Aramaic also translated Hebrew in some translations. So Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. I would love that, that kind of power. What I've written, I've written. Stop complaining. (laughs) I might use that. Uh, Here the Jews will come up. So it's very common to put the sentence, what did this criminal do? Crucifixion was a public event. It's up there on the hill. Everyone can see it. And it's basically Rome's terrorism act to get everybody to submit to the emperor. Hey, if you don't submit to me, that is what's happening to my rebels. And people see those bodies dying on the cross. It's horrible. Not just the death itself. And if you've seen the Passion of the Christ, you get a little glimpse. But just the aftermath that is never really talked about is that they actually never buried bodies off the cross they would just leave them up there and the natural processes and uh carry on birds and stuff they would finish off the job so it was a very public humiliating way to die even after you were dead your body was disregarded and so it was very gross it made a statement it would strike terror in the hearts (laughs) in the hearts of the empire uh, so don't mess with me, Caesar says. So now the inscription, of course, would be up there. So everybody knows, oh, don't do that. If I do that, then I, I'll get crucified too. So behave, be good, be nice. Um, Jesus' title said, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. His crime offense was he challenged Caesar's throne. So everybody would know that. It's like, oh, okay. 
one of those guys. Lots of them in Jerusalem trying to raise rebellions and revolts. Uh, but the Jews come to Pilate and because they're embarrassed. Don't, don't tell the world that this crucified criminal is our king. That's embarrassing. We didn't want him. Don't put he's our king. Say this guy thinks he's our king. And then Pilate probably getting that last jab. You might remember last week we talked about he doesn't have a good relationship with the Jews. Probably to get the last say says, oh, what I've written, I've written. You don't like it too bad. I like it all the more now. So he's having the last laugh, if you can even laugh over this. Uh, pagans they are. So in 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. It was known that the high priest wore a tunic of one piece and he was not to tear it. So there may be a little symbolism in there for us. Uh, This was to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. So four women are there. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved... Remember, that might be our author, John, standing nearby. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son, pointing to John. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother, referring to Mary. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So there Jesus, taking care of his mother, puts her in the care of John the disciple. So in verse 28, after this, Jesus said, uh, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had finished the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it is finished does not mean I'm giving up. It means it's accomplished. He did everything he was supposed to do. And it's rather interesting, uh, given the context of John's use of sevens to mimic creation and that Jesus is the word, the creative word, and that he's the light coming to the darkness, just totally ripping off passages from Genesis. It's totally okay to do that if you're a Bible writer. He's showing Jesus as the creator. Um, At the end of the creation, in Genesis 2, verse 1, it uses the word finished. And God finished creating the heavens and the earth. And so it is possible that it is finished is echoing the fact that my work to bring the new creation of God, where Zoe life reigns, is finished. Right here on the cross, I've finished that work. It is very possible, especially because when Moses goes to build the tabernacle, it actually has seven building phases of the tabernacle where each time it says the Lord said to Moses, then he tells him how to build it seven times. The Lord says to Moses and he builds it. Ironically, the sixth time is where he appoints uh, Eliahab and uh, Bill's, I don't remember their names, but the two guys to help with the temple as if it's two humans being created in the garden. And then the seventh ones where he tells them to remember the Sabbath and to keep it. And that's what Jesus or God did on the seventh days. He rested. Uh, 
after those seven phases, which seem to mirror the creation, it says that Moses finished the work of the tabernacle. And even in parts, if you want to go look at it and compare it to Genesis 2, parts actually mimic the exact phrasing of the creation narrative in Genesis and what Moses is doing the tabernacle. So it seems very clear that in, in Exodus' mind, Moses is creating a little miniature garden of Eden for God to live with his people in. And both times in the creation and in the tabernacle, when it's done, it says that they finished. And here Jesus bringing the new creation to the world, going to the cross as a finishing act, says it is finished. And of course, what is, one of the big things he finished was paying for our sin. It's finished. There's nothing more to do. Hebrews, the whole book makes a great point to say that Jesus finished once and for all. He was our one-time sacrifice. There's nothing more that needs to be added. It is finished. And then it says he gave up his spirit, which could be translated, he handed over the spirit. Controversial. But nonetheless, it's true. Because of his death, he's able to give us his spirit. One more thing. It says that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I found this so thoroughly interesting. I just have to share it. In the bowing of the head of a deity was a familiar picture because in Homer's book, the Iliad, which was written long before Jesus and well known to our world, not to mention their world. It was uh, in the Iliad, the gods, when they were very serious, they're going to solemnize an oath or a promise. The gods would bow their head as they made the oath or the promise. And it's possible that John wanted to make sure we saw Jesus as bowing his head just to sort of show the trump card over the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, maybe. That when Jesus died on the cross, he was solemnizing. He was making the oath, the promise that he has paid it all. Possible. So, verse 31, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath... For the Sabbath was a high day, meaning basically the Passover is falling on the Sabbath. So it's a double holy day, right? The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and then of the other who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that his leg uh, saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out a flow, or they came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Blood and water. Well, that's been the subject of much writing. What does it mean? Four leading ideas. I'm just going to throw them. So you can't take, well. One, this, that the blood and water shows Jesus' true humanity. Because in Greek mythology, if a god bled, they didn't bleed blood. They bled something called ichor. It was the fluid of the gods. And John's showing that Jesus, though he's the son of God, was totally a human because he bled. Another idea that Jesus is giving us through his blood, the forgiveness, and through the water, his spirit. 
the water, of course, being a symbol of the Spirit throughout the Gospel of John. That one makes sense. Uh, third, the church sacraments are at play here. Uh, John is showing us here, Jesus uh, gives us communion to remember his death, and then the water is for baptism. So the blood for communion, the water for baptism. Or fourth, I like this one. It's uh, the Passover kind of being played out. The blood for the blood of the lamb that saved them from the angel of death, and the water for the crossing of the Red Sea that made them turn their back on Egypt forever. And that, of course, is what Jesus is doing on the cross, is he is our Moses leader, taking us out of slavery and into freedom, into the new creation. So in verse 38, we have the burial. Uh, Nicodemus, who met Jesus in chapter 3, now comes out in public that he actually cared about Jesus. And there's also a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, who we learn is really high-ranking guy in the religious leaders. So these two guys risk a lot of reputation by saying, we side with this crucified criminal who rebelled against Caesar in the eyes of the world. And they, they take care to bury him. Now in verse 41, we read, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So they laid Jesus there. Whew. Told you this is big. So let's go to chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, John, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter, you can just see Peter's like, what stands up? And just, you know, he's out the door. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John's just like, I just want everyone to know I actually outdid Peter on something. And stooping to look in, the, the tomb, probably going, like the opening, probably goes up to your shoulder, at least the one they have in Jerusalem they think is the tomb. It only goes up to your shoulder. You do have to really get down to get in. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, <clears throat> following me, <laughs> and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, third reference to his victory, also went in and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Okay, so what's the deal with all this the little head cloth and the linen, like a lot of emphasis, three verses. That's a big chunk of the resurrection story uh, devoted to the cloths that his body were wrapped in. What is that about? Well, that's about this. Mary comes and says, they've taken the body. And of course, your natural assumption isn't, oh yeah, I wake up every day expecting the dead to rise. Not at all. They weren't even, they were surprised by this. So she thinks someone stole the body. All this attention to the clause is to show the reader, look, reader, use your logic. Did somebody steal the body? Think about that for a second. You're sneaking into someone's house, right? You knock over a lamp. Are you going to take the time to pick the lamp back up, brush it off, fix the cushions on the sofa as you're stealing all their stuff? 
Not at all. Everyone knows what a burglary looks like. Everything's strewn about. And so John is pointing out that nobody would have broken into the tomb and taken the time to take the linen cloths off and fold the little napkin head that was on his head and fold it up and put it neatly to the side and say, great, it looks beautiful. They'll be so surprised when they come and then take the body out. Like that's... That's the reason for belaboring this point is that the readers are seeing, oh, he hasn't been stolen. So what's going on here? Why are the linen cloths there? Right? If you're stealing, you just grab them and run. Everyone knows how to do that. Well, they've seen it at least. It's okay. Jesus died for us. So we're good tonight. We're good. Um, But also interesting is this. On the first day of the week... This is verse 1. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Three-time references. Three-time references. First day of the week, early, while it's still dark. So, can you imagine? This is telling us that new time has been birthed. It's the first day of the week. Just think, this is a brand new week, a brand new creation, a brand new world. The very first day, the very first second, the very first moment. It's early in the day. It's still dark. Now, everything's quite understood about what's happening. But what we do know is that at this scene, this moment, history has pivoted. Does Mary know that as she's coming to the tomb, she's actually stepping towards the very center of history? That point where B.C. turns into A.D.? Does she have any idea what is there? John is bringing out the time threefold for us. So let's keep going. Verse 11. Oh, no, no. One more thing. In verse 2, um, it says that she ran to Simon Peter, the other disciple whom Lord loved and, or whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord. First time in the gospel of John that Jesus is called the Lord. And that really surprised me. That's not my insight. I'm not like that careful of a reader. But the commentary said that from this verse on, he will be called Lord 14 times. It never hit me until then. Oh my goodness. Of course, he wasn't Lord until he rose from the dead. And ever since, he's always been called Lord. And a ton of us say Lord in our prayers many times. It's kind of like a filler word sometimes, but nonetheless, appropriately so that he is our Lord because he's conquered the strongest king in our old creation, death. And he's now reigning over even that. Well, in verse 11, we now have a very, very touching scene. So Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. So remember, Peter and John had left. Mary's left there crying. And it says that she saw, when she went in, she saw two angels in white sitting where the head, where the body of Jesus had, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, 
Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him that I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew Aramaic, Rabboni, which means my teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Do not be hard on Mary. I don't know that I would recognize Jesus. Especially in the dark of the early morning, you're bawling your eyes out. You can't see real well. Oh, and of course, she's expecting Jesus to just come out of a bush at any minute. I mean, of course, she's totally surprised by this. But unique, isn't it, that it was her name that got her to see who he is. Jesus said in John 10, I know my sheep's names, or I call my sheep by name, and they hear my voice. And here he does this. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. So this is still Resurrection Sunday. Evening, by the way. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace. People, whoa, guys, settle down. Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive sins, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So Jesus commissions them to be his disciples. Uh, This isn't to say that you and I have the authority to damn people and to rescue people. I'm not going to forgive you, so I sent you to you know where. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that you represent the ability by your message to either deliver people or by withholding your message to condemn people. So in verse 24, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, Thomas, you're not going to believe it. We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Well, eight days later, which, by the way, is Sunday. The the ancient reckoning was you counted the day you're on. So we would simply say a week later. They're saying eight days later. So the next Sunday, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, he totally knows what Thomas had said earlier. Put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him. My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Now, this is really Jesus turning to us. Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Interesting, isn't it? Just this whole scene with Thomas. I don't. Some people call him doubting Thomas and like, oh, Thomas, you should have believed. I don't 
I don't want my kids growing up just this blind faith, like, oh, I just believe as I'm supposed to. I mean, it's okay to question. It's okay to try to seek out, do I really believe this, like Thomas wants to do. I don't want to take just your word for it. I want to find out. I want to look. I want to know truth. And so maybe Thomas isn't in a bad place. However, this is where Thomas did fail. As one of the future leaders of the church, where is he with the first church gathering on the first Sunday of the resurrection? And we'll notice, don't you notice in John's gospel, Jesus makes his appearances on Sundays. The point is, and each time he stands in the midst of the disciples, the point John is making is ever since the resurrection of Jesus, his disciples gather on the first day of the week, the Sunday of the week, and put Jesus in their midst. And the reason Thomas did not see the risen Lord is because he did not fellowship with the gathering believers on Sunday. And there's something to be said there. I, I, I get I get that church can be sort of a drag every week. It hardly ever deviates. Uh, and my generation is very, very unchurched not just because they're all agnostic but even the christians like oh i just do church at home like on my couch with my iphone um obviously you can meet god that way but listen there is something very biblically rooted about a a different experience when believers come together and thomas did not see what the others saw because he wanted to do solo church on his lazy boy Also worth noting is that you don't have to gather Sunday morning to see the risen Lord. And just, just very gently. Uh, this is Sunday night, and some people have such a hard time with, I, I can't just make Sunday night, like it doesn't feel like church to me. This can be church. There's nothing, it was Sunday night, Jesus first showed up. So actually, I would just say one up that, so no, I don't. <laughs> I just wanted to say, look, it's okay. It's okay to meet, just meet, whenever it is, just meet with Christians, whatever day you can. But we have to be together. That's when Jesus reveals himself in a very unique way. All right, so we're going to read now the last two verses, and we'll do a worship song. So in verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. You remember, he only recorded seven. But these seven are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have Zoe in his name. So the worship team's coming up. Um, that's his point. This whole gospel so that you can have Zoe, that life that God gives. 